We interrupt our membership class in one sense. We've been looking at the terms of communion, but we want to focus this evening upon the membership interview. And uh, so I'll give you, first of all, uh, some preliminary remarks, and then we'll get into the body of the lecture and so, just by way of, of introduction, because the session at its last meeting moved to begin interviewing for membership and receiving into membership those who desired and were ready to take that step, we judged it important to explain what we would be looking for in a membership interview. We would let the congregation know that much reading, studying, praying, and discussing of these matters by the session has been our reason for delaying this step for a few months. Even though we have had members who have indicated they would like to become members as soon as possible, we've actually just asked them to to wait because we, the session, wanted to make sure that we understood these issues accurately and correctly. And so, uh, if there has been a delay, it's been due to that re- or for that reason. Now, we know that some in our congregation will be ready before others to become members. But we want you to know as a session that we are not pressuring anyone to immediately make this commitment if you believe there yet remain questions that you need to answer or if there is more studying that you believe needs to be done. We believe that if you have resolved the matters, the issues, that you should make that commitment. We believe you should become a member of the congregation, but if you're still looking at issues, we are not in any wise seeking to pressure you into that step. Next, the elders are committed to helping everyone who earnestly desires to become a member of this church. We're committed to helping you through this process. And if you would like to meet with us to discuss any issue related to the church, related to church membership, we invite you to simply call us, let us know. We will be more than happy to meet with you. If we come uh, to your home for a membership interview and we believe you do not yet understand a truth that is significant for a member to know. We will gladly instruct you and then we will return at another time to complete the membership interview. We won't say, well, you failed the membership interview. You know, come back next year. No, we'll simply say we're going to continue the membership interview. You've done well in these areas, but there is an, this one area we want you just to look at it, consider. And so we'll continue the, uh, the interview. If one is truly desirous of being united with us in membership, 
We believe ignorance will only be a temporary impediment, a very short-term impediment to your becoming a member of the church because you will be instructed. We will take that upon ourselves to instruct and to uh, help you to understand if something is not clear. Ultimately, the only reasons a person would be denied membership in this church is, number one, because he or she leads a scandalous life, that is, lives in notorious disregard of God's law. That's the first reason. And secondly, because he or she embraces a position known to be contrary to the standards of this church. Which standards this session and our covenanted forefathers believe to be founded upon and agreeable to the word of God. And so because we believe that our standards are agreeable to the word of God, and we steadfastly hold that view, and we'll continue to hold that view until someone can show us that they are not agreeable to the Word of God at any point, to conscientiously embrace a position known to be contrary to the standards is, in effect, to embrace a position contrary to the Word of God. However, we also want to make it clear, we do confess that one may be a Christian who presently is leading a scandalous life. As, for example, the brother who was living in fornication with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Or one may be a Christian who presently is embracing some known error or false teaching. As, for example, the brother who does not walk according to the teaching received from the apostles, as in 2 Thessalonians 3.6. But we also confess that in neither of the cases just mentioned, whether open scandal or known error contrary to the word of God, should a person be admitted into membership in the church. If in both instances, whether unrepentant scandal or unrepentant error, a brother should be excommunicated from church membership, then in the same instances, a brother should be prevented from becoming a member in the first place. However, mere ignorance of certain fundamental truths is easily, and I underline the word easily, is easily remedied by being instructed and by affirming the truth. Mere ignorance will ultimately not keep you out of membership in this church. Thus, let no one fear that a non-comprehensive or non-exhaustive understanding of our standards will prevent him or her from membership. We do not we do not require an exhaustive knowledge or understanding 
or comprehensive exhaust, uh, uh, knowledge or understanding of our standards to be a member. Our criterion for membership is not a perfect knowledge of our standards. This may be something you want to write down. Our criterion for membership is not a perfect knowledge, an exhaustive knowledge of our standards, but rather a faithful understanding, a faithful understanding of the fundamental principles contained in those standards. We are not so interested in knowing whether you can identify persons, places, documents, dates, but rather whether you understand the fundamental truths underlying and contained in our standards. And if you're not sure what those fundamental truths are within our standards, that's why we're here. We will help you identify those. Now, I'll have more to say about that a little later. But those are my preliminary remarks at the outset. <clears throat> the second main point, after the preliminary remarks, I'd like to talk to you about stages of membership. Stages of membership. There are two stages of membership. First, non-communicant membership. Non-communicant membership, a member in the church but cannot come to the Lord's table, and communicant membership, one who is a member and can come to the Lord's table. Let's talk about each of these stages of membership briefly. Non-communicant membership, what is that? Who are non-communicant members? This includes all baptized children in our congregation and all baptized adults or older children who have made a credible profession of the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals of the faith, let me simply summarize for you just a kind of a neat little package would would, would uh, have to do with the doctrines of God, Christ, man, sin, salvation. Kind of a minimum, uh, that would be kind of the minimum. That wouldn't mean that we couldn't ask any question outside of those, but that would be what basically we're talking about when we talk about the fundamentals of the faith Basically, those things without which a person will not come to Christ, cannot know Christ. Talking about those very fundamental things dealing with uh, our salvation in the Christian life. <clears throat> and so, the non-communicant member is one who's been baptized and uh, and then for adults or for older children, those who have made a credible profession of the fundamentals of the faith, and yet whose understanding of the truth falls short of that level of understanding as is found in the Shorter Catechism. 
their understanding falls short of that understanding which we find in the Shorter Catechism. The Shorter Catechism is, is a very fundamental doctrine. It teaches the, the, those truths that pertain to, um, uh, to our faith and our life. And it was originally given to the church for those who had little or no experience in understanding what Christianity was about. So we, we certainly believe this is at least required of one who comes to the Lord's table, that they have this understanding of the Christian faith. Now, I'll again talk a little more about that as I go along. But what are the privileges then of non-communicate members? What do they enjoy? Those who are non-communicate members enjoy certain privileges of the church. For example, they enjoy the seal of baptism. They enjoy the administration of the Word of God, whether through preaching, through teaching in a setting like this, through counsel and instruction and advice. They enjoy the privilege of the oversight and discipline of the church. They enjoy family visits. They enjoy the use of their gifts to the benefit of the church. And they also enjoy the communion of the saints within this visible expression of Christ's church. However, those who are non-communicant members do not enjoy the privileges of the Lord's Supper. For the reason I stated, they are ignorant, deficient in certain knowledge that should be present in those who come to the Lord's Supper. And so they do not enjoy the privileges of the Lord's Supper or in the case of heads of households, they do not enjoy the privilege of voting in congregational meetings. And so if a head of a household is a non-communicant member, we would require that he become a communicant member before he had voting privileges in congregational meetings. One who votes in congregational meetings must have at least that kind of understanding of the faith uh, that we see in the Shorter Catechism to make biblical decisions, to be able to understand those things. <clears throat> The next question with regard to non-communicant membership, what are the terms of admission into non-communicant membership? Well, for children, the terms of admission are a believing parent and baptism. A believing parent and baptism brings one into non-communicant membership. For adults, Terms of admission into non-communicant membership are a life free of public scandal, a credible, 
profession of the fundamentals of the faith. Again, God, Christ, man, sin, salvation. And conscientiously embracing no known error contrary to the truth. Conscientiously embracing no known error contrary to the truth. For example, even for non-communicant membership, for one to become a member of this congregation, if they said, I don't believe in unconditional election. I believe in conditional election. Well, we would have to work through that particular issue with them first before they could become a member of this church. Or if they said, um, I don't believe in infant baptism. I believe in believers only baptism. Again, that would be an impediment to their becoming a member of this church, even at the non-communicate level. Or if they denied the perpetual obligation of the covenants. They said, no, I don't believe the covenants are perpetually obligating. Or if they had a pluralistic view of the equal toleration of all religions within a nation, that all religions should be equally tolerated within a nation, that there shouldn't be any uh, favor shown to the true Christian religion over all other religions, then again, that would keep one from becoming a member of the church. Or finally, just a last example, one denied the obligation to keep the Sabbath. Many, many examples that we could give, but, if, but those are just uh, a summary or uh, illustrations of what we're talking about. <clears throat> One cannot become a member if they conscientiously embrace an error contrary to our standards. <clears throat> then let me ask this. This might be very helpful to you. What kinds of questions might an adult who's being interviewed for non-communicant membership, in other words, he doesn't, here's a new convert. Uh, he's just led to the Lord and he wants to become a member as soon as possible. And we want to see him become a member as soon as possible. What kinds of questions might we ask this new convert or what kinds of things would we instruct him concerning what he need to know? To, to become a member and to be baptized within our congregation. Well, these would be, again, the kinds of questions I think we'd be looking at. And they, again, fall under those general headings of God, Christ, man, sin, and salvation. <clears throat> How many gods are there? Do you believe there are three persons in the Godhead? <clears throat> Is God without sin? Who created all things? Is Jesus Christ fully God? Is Jesus Christ fully man? What did Jesus Christ accomplish when he died upon the cross? For whom did Jesus die? Is the Holy Spirit an impersonal force like the wind? Are all men conceived by natural generation sinners? Why are all men sinners? What is one important purpose of God's law? Why has God given to us his law? Can a man come to Christ by his own free will? 
What must the Spirit of God do before a man can believe in Christ? Can a man be saved by his own good works? What's repentance? What is justification by faith? Are Christians finished with the law of God as a rule for obedience? What's sanctification? If Jesus died for all of our sins, do we still need to confess our sins to God? As far as you know, do you believe the standards of this church to be agreeable to the Word of God? As far as you're aware, at your level of knowledge at this particular point, do you believe that they're agreeable to the Word of God? Do you know of any doctrine that you believe that is contrary to the standards of this church? Those would be the the kinds of questions that we would um, ask one who was was becoming a uh, non-communicant member uh, within the church, an adult who was making a credible profession of faith. Now, that may seem like a lot of questions, but as you read the sermons that are preached by the apostles in the book of Acts to the crowds there, these questions follow straight from those sermons. These are fundamental doctrines that... And information that was given to those in Acts 2, the Philippian jailer, the, the um, uh, Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Cornelius. You, you look at the sermon that's, that's preached in other sermons that are preached. These are the kinds of matters that we see. And uh, some of the questions being uh, inferences drawn, drawn from even information that was given. So... Uh, this is not going into some kind of uh, high degree of uh, knowledge of the faith in order to be baptized and make a credible profession of faith. Um, and so, this is, we believe, uh, in keeping with our standards as well as, more importantly, uh, it's in keeping with the Word of God. Well, someone might ask, well, what is the... What's the evidence from the Scripture uh, for non-communicant membership? And I just uh, cite a couple things here. Children in the Old Covenant were circumcised members of the church and yet could not come to the Passover without sufficient understanding of the truth. And in Exodus 12.26, you find children asking their fathers, What mean ye? Not what mean we, what mean ye by this service? What do you mean by this Passover feast? What does all of this mean? There needed to be a level of knowledge in coming to that particular meal. Second, new converts we find in the New Testament, new converts were baptized into the church the same day upon hearing and affirming the fundamentals of the faith. For example, the 3,000 converted were convert, who were converted and baptized that very same day after hearing and affirming the truth from Peter's sermon in Acts 2. 
The Philippian jailer converted and baptized the same day after hearing and affirming the truth from Paul and Silas in Acts 16. And so, immediately upon hearing, affirming, and affirming the truth, they were baptized. Now, the second stage of membership, communicant membership. Who are communicant members? I'll go through the same questions and give the responses to these questions. Who are communicant members? This includes all those who have been baptized and not only have made a credible profession of the fundamentals of the faith, God, Christ, man, sin, and salvation, but who also are judged by the elders to have a level of understanding of truth essentially equal to that of the shorter catechism. Minimally equal to that of the shorter catechism. So if we begin to talk about certain matters that are covered in the shorter catechism, they would, they would be able to interact with us on these particular issues. What are the privileges, second of all, of, of communicant membership? Those who are communicant members enjoy certain privileges of the church beyond that of non-communicant membership. They enjoy all the privileges that we stated under non-communicant membership, but they enjoy privileges beyond that. Namely, they have the enjoyment of the Lord's Supper and, secondly, in the case of heads of households, the privilege of voting in congregational meetings. Third, Uh, The third question, what are the terms of admission into communicant membership? A life free of public scandal, a credible profession of not only the fundamentals of the faith, but also a profession and understanding of the truth, at least equal to that of the shorter catechism, baptism, and conscientiously embracing no known error contrary to the truth. At this level of membership, the elders will also want to know that a member has an understanding of the basic principles contained in not only our confessional standards, like the Shorter Catechism, but that would be the doctrinal uh, uh, document that we would use, but we would also want to know that one has a, uh, a foundational understanding, a basic understanding of the truths, the, the basic truths that are presented in, in uh, our other standards as well, uh, like the uh, covenants, the National and Solemn League and Covenant, the Arkansas Renovation, the Act Declaration and Testimony, the Uh, directory for public worship in the form of government, that they have, again, and I'm going to go through the same thing where I ask some questions about these documents so that you understand what I mean by a basic understanding uh, of these documents. For example, uh, uh, in the shorter 
catechism, these, this would be the fourth question. What kinds of questions might one who is being interviewed for communicant membership be asked? Well, from the shorter catechism, beyond matters related to God, Christ, man, sin, and salvation, particularly significant areas, I would think at least, would be a doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the law of God, doctrine of Christian liberty, what the, the catechism and confessional standards say about lawful oaths and vows, the, sac, uh, the church, the doctrine of the church, and, and the doctrine of the sacraments and, and the means of grace. Those would be very significant matters in coming to the Lord's table, that one understands some of these basic truths of, of the Christian um, faith. Now, what about in the form of government? What about that document? It's in the back of our volume, which contains the uh, Confession of Faith. What about the form of government? Well, a question like, what's Presbyterianism? What does it mean to be a Presbyterian? Uh, who is the head of the church? Should congregations be united to one another? Should they be independent? If a higher court of the church makes a decision that is lawful, but it's not preferred by a lower court, but it's not unlawful, it is a lawful decision, is the lower court bound to obey that decision? Who can preach? See, all these questions you can find answers to by looking at the form of government. What are, what are elders? What are deacons? Are there biblical qualifications to hold office? Those are the kinds of questions you know, that, that we would be asking from the form of government. We're not trying to stump anybody. We're just trying to see if you understand the basic truths that these documents convey. The, third, uh, the next document, the Directory for Public Worship. Questions of this nature, perhaps, could be asked. What is the difference between a directory for worship and a form for worship? A directory. A directory is, is, a, is a guide. You're not bound to the express words in a directory. For example, when you find the prayers that are mentioned in the directory, you're not bound to pray those. But in a particular form for worship, you're bound to pray. You're bound to pray exactly those words. And so we are bound to the heads that we find within the directory for public worship, but we are not bound to the express words used in prayer and this type, you know, that type of thing. That's, that is what a, a directory as opposed to a form is uh, for worship. By what standard should all worship be governed? What's our standard for, for worship? Does the directory dictate what the content of the songs sung in worship must be? What is the directory's position on sanctifying the Lord's Day? 
What does it say about sanctifying the Lord's Day? Does the directory maintain that lining of the Psalms is agreeable to the Word of God? These would be the kinds of questions, again, that one might be asked. Uh, that, uh, again, they're not, uh, we're not sifting through to find the, the, the least uh, details in that. Though we do believe we are bound by the details, we're not trying to, to bring out the hardest questions. We're simply trying to ascertain whether a person understands these basic concepts about our form of government. Then how about the covenants? The national covenant and solemn legal covenant. What kinds of questions might follow from our, from our covenants? Well, questions like these, perhaps. What purposes did the covenants serve when they were instituted? Why were they instituted in the first place? Do the covenants support a pluralistic view of civil or ecclesiastical government? Is the magistrate responsible to punish blasphemers? Should all citizens of a nation endeavor the rooting out of all heresy within the kingdom <clears throat> at their various situation or stations in life? their vocations. In a covenanted nation, should the citizens give their allegiance to a civil magistrate who does not swear the covenants? Do covenants that are agreeable to the Word of God perpetually oblige their descendants? And one last question. Is the uniformity of all Christian churches in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline a desirable goal? Should we be striving for that? These would be questions that, uh, that would be very, I think, important as it pertains to understanding um, uh, the covenants. What about the Arkansas renovation? That document. Well, I don't have too many questions on that because, again, most of that simply is talking about the Solemn League and Covenant and the National Covenant. So uh, we could ask a couple questions about that. Are covenanted people responsible to renew the covenants made by their forefathers? Is there an obligation to renew covenants, faithful biblical covenants made by our forefathers? And secondly, when renewing the covenants, can the circumstances of the covenant be changed without altering the substance of the, of the covenant? Can the circumstances of that covenant, for example, when it talks about uh, King Charles or something like that. Can that be altered when we renew the covenant? That's a circumstance, a historical cir circumstance without altering the substance. And I would propose, yes, that can be done. We, we affirm the, 
that the covenant as to their moral equity, not as to uh, we're not um, we're not bound to swear the exact same form of civil government and say that's the only form of government, the monarchy. And so we're not bound to the circumstances, but to the moral equity, to the substance of the covenant. And then finally, the act, declaration and testimony. Questions we might ask concerning that are biblical attainments achieved in history to be faithfully followed by posterity. When in history we finally see a pure church in a, in a nation implementing biblical laws and commandments, are we bound to follow those attainments that have been reached? How is the church one moral person throughout history? I'll talk about attainments and and talk about moral person uh, in just a, a few minutes but that's a question of, uh, that I think is fairly significant how is the church one moral person throughout history should a Christian be indifferent about attending churches where the truth is not upheld in the creed in preaching or in worship should we be indifferent or should that really make a difference to us where we if we're visiting somewhere, where we worship when we're visiting. Well, what is the evidence for communicant membership from the Scripture? We talked about the evidence for non-communicant membership. What's the evidence for communicant membership from Scripture? Again, uh, Exodus 12:26 implies a measurable amount of knowledge of the truth was requisite to coming to the Passover. What mean ye by this service? And then number two, though we have many examples of new converts receiving baptism the same day in which they profess their faith, the 3,000 in Acts 2, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, Paul himself in Acts 9, Cornelius in Acts 10, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19. We have no examples of baptized converts receiving the Lord's Supper the same day in which they profess their faith. Very interesting. Why is that the case? Well, we maintain, along with our Presbyterian, our covenanted forefathers, that they needed to be further instructed in the truth before coming to the Lord's Supper. Our larger catechism, question 173, asks the question, May any who profess the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper be kept from it? Such as are found to be ignorant or scandalous, notwithstanding their profession of the faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper, may and ought to be kept from that sacrament by the power which Christ hath left in his church until they receive instruction and manifest their reformation.
some of the proof texts that the uh, uh, question 173 gives. First um, Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, where we find there the need to know uh, and to discern, to be instructed uh, as to certain issues and doctrines concerning Christ and his body. In Matthew 7, 6, this ought not to be construed. This is, the, again, this is the proof text that was used uh, in the, uh, under this question. But Matthew 7, 6 ought not to be construed as saying because um, the Westminster Divines used this passage that they were saying this is true of non-communicant members, but you'll understand that there is, there is a... Um, uh, a parallel. This says, uh, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. The point that, uh, that I think the divines were making in applying that particular passage to communicant membership is that uh, we should not give that which is holy to people who cannot understand and appreciate it. They won't know what to do with it. Furthermore, um, there is the danger of bringing further judgment upon themselves. 1 Timothy 5.22 is another uh, proof text where uh, the apostle says, uh, do not lay hands suddenly upon anyone and thereby partake of their sin. And uh, uh, the admonition, I think the application there is that in giving the Lord's Supper to someone who is not ready to receive it, doesn't understand uh, all that is involved, that elders actually can participate in that particular sin, be partakers of that sin. And then uh, finally, in Acts 2.42, after the... uh, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost were uh, believed, affirmed the truth, and were baptized, we find that it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. It would appear that after being baptized, there was this process. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And then it also says in breaking of bread, which I understand to be uh, the Lord's Supper. Okay, the third and final main point that I'd like to cover are just important considerations as we consider uh, the issue of membership, just important considerations. And uh, I'm sure that in the question and answer period, there may be others that you find that I didn't mention, but I tried to summarize some of the important considerations. And I, again, phrase them in the form of questions. Do all the standards Do all of the standards, all of the documents have to be read from cover to cover before one can become a non-communicant or a communicant member? 
Is that a prerequisite that one must read every word within these documents before he or she can become a member? Well, first of all, we would not want to discourage anyone from reading the standards of the church, obviously. All members should press on in reading and understanding them. And husbands and fathers should disciple their families using God's word and these documents. Because, again, we believe they're agreeable to the scriptures. However, one will not be evaluated for membership on the basis of whether he has read all of the documents from cover to cover. For communicant membership, he will be evaluated on the basis of whether he understands the basic truths that are taught in our standards. And if we see that maybe he's deficient in that, and that he hasn't read and he's deficient, we'll point that out to him or to her, in which case, you know, they'll need to read that, read uh, more of the documents and uh, understand them. Second question might be phrased this way. With several documents as our standards, if I do not read every word and clearly understand every word in these documents, is that not requiring an implicit faith to become a communicant member? Is that not requiring an implicit faith to become a member? And we would respond this way. No, we do not believe that to be an implicit faith. Implicit faith is believing a doctrine or practice to be true simply and only on the authority of man. That's to require an implicit faith. Simply upon the authority of man. We do not require that of anyone. What we as elders are expounding... I'll summarize in seven points very quickly. What we're expounding concerning our terms of communion so that it might help clear up this issue of implicit faith or I'll mention under seven points. First, these six terms of communion form the basis of the constitution of this church. Second, The doctrines, practices, and testimony found in these documents we believe to be agreeable to God's Word. Third, a person is therefore morally bound by the truth of these documents whether they have read them or not, just as they are bound to believe all of God's truth regardless of whether they have read it or heard it. We don't become obligated to believe God's truth once we understand it. We become more obligated to do so, but we're obligated to, under, to believe and affirm all of God's truth. And so, again, if these documents are agreeable to the Word of God, as we, as we uh, uh, believe, then, uh, then all of us, whether we've read all of the document or not, we are yet bound uh, to the truths contained in them. <clears throat> Number four, 
if the elders are satisfied that a person has sufficient understanding, and that's not a comprehensive or exhaustive understanding, but a sufficient understanding, and approbation or approval of the basic truths contained in these documents, he will be admitted into communicant membership. Number five. A candidate for membership can only, this is I think significant, a candidate for membership can only consent to what he understands the documents to teach. If he's ignorant of a truth or unbeknown to himself, he believes an error. He is not practicing implicit faith simply because he may be ignorant or an error concerning the truth. That's not implicit faith. I'll go through that again. I see some raised brows. If a person, as he looks at the teaching found in these documents, and what he understands them to teach, he affirms and he believes. But say he's uh, ignorant of some of the truths that are in that document. But what he says is, I believe these documents are agreeable uh, and uh, to the word of God, and what I have read, what I know, I, I agree with these documents. That's not implicit faith. To require that he know everything that's in those documents and to know it perfectly and comprehensively is to require a faith beyond what the Bible itself requires of us as Christians. That we understand everything. I mean, I believe um, many, many truths, but there are many things that I'm yet ignorant of. At the same time, if he says, I believe these documents to be agreeable to the word of God, but subsequently he comes to the conclusion that there is error in these documents. Did he practice implicit faith? No. He believed that these documents were agreeable to the word of God, but subsequently came to learn that that uh, at one point there was an error. Now we, you know, uh, as elders, are not saying that that you know that that uh, will happen or that it should happen or anything. But all I'm trying to say is that is not implicit faith. The sixth point. If a person comes to the conviction that a doctrine or practice contained in our standards is unbiblical, he is not practicing an implicit faith unless he consents to a doctrine or practice which he believes to only have the authority of man. If he believes something only on the authority of man, then he has an implicit faith. And then, finally, number seven, 
Thus, when a candidate is asked whether he believes our standards to be agreeable to the word of God, he truthfully answers insofar as he understands. He can't, he can't say beyond what he understands and what he knows. That's not implicit faith. And when a candidate is reminded that as a member he is not to speak contrary to the standards of the church, that is not requiring an implicit faith either, for he agrees not to speak contrary to the standards on the basis alone that they are agreeable to the word of God. And so I don't see how uh, the fact that we have several documents, nor the fact that, that we're not saying that one has to read or understand everything from cover to cover that we are requiring an implicit faith. The third question for our consideration, when I become a member, am I renewing the covenants? Is that what I'm doing when I become a member? And we would say, no, not formally. You're not formally renewing the covenants because you, because in becoming a member, you affirm that the covenants are agreeable to the word of God. That's not a formal covenant renewal. You're giving your approval that these covenants are agreeable to God's word, but you're not formally swearing the covenants. We will, by God's grace, renew the covenants in the future. But this step in membership is not such a formal covenant renewal as that. Fourth question, what does the moral person of the church mean? It refers to the fact that the church is not viewed as many different persons throughout history, many individuals throughout history, but rather that the church is viewed by God as essentially one person that is responsible to own the moral obligations of all covenants, of all duties, of all obligations in history which are agreeable to the word of God. And that's, uh, that uh, is firmly founded in many places, but um, just uh, in the book of Galatians alone, uh, Galatians 3.15 says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. In this context, the Apostle Paul is talking about the binding uh, obligation of the, of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessings that flow from the Abrahamic covenant to new covenant believers. Uh, because he sees, as he says in uh, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 3, that the church in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, are not two separate persons, but are one person simply at different stages of development. That in the Old Covenant, it was as a child that was yet under his tutor. But in the New Co Covenant, because Christ has come, it is now a mature Son who has entered into all of his privileges that God has uh, purchased for him through Christ. 
The next question, to what does living up to the attainment of reformation refer? Well, this refers to the light of biblical doctrine and practice which has been reached by pure churches in history. We are obligated to live up to the light God gives us in history insofar as that light, and it's not light if it's not, this is not true of it, insofar as it is agreeable to the word of God. Then it's light. If it's not agreeable to the word of God, it's darkness and we should shun it and forsake it. When we fail to do so, live up to the attainment to reformation, when we fail to do so, we fall away from the truth. And in, in the scripture, falling away from the truth is, a, is called apostasy. It's apostasy. Apostasy doesn't mean that somebody uh, has become as evil or as wicked as he possibly can. There are many uh, 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 times in the scripture we find uh, the church falling away from its attainments. Uh, even in, uh, uh, in the cases, uh, in the letters to Revelation, the letters that Christ wrote to the churches in Revelation, we find apostasy. They were still churches. There were still believers in those churches. But it's simply a falling away from the truth. That's serious, but it doesn't mean that a person necessarily is not a believer anymore. This is, this uh, concept of living up to the attainment of Reformation, this is a biblical principle. And we find in Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, again, there are many, many passages that we could appeal to, but we don't have time to do so. Philippians 3, 16 says, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. That's a command. That's not an option. That's in the command form. Uh, as well, if you look at Hebrews 12.1, um, the, the apostle says there, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The cloud of witnesses are all of those uh, individuals that are referred to in summary form in, in Hebrews chapter 11, what the apostle is saying, let us follow in the footsteps of the faithful. Let us follow them as they followed Christ. Paul says that many times. Imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. And then in Hebrews 13.7, again, the apostle says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow." considering the end of their conversation, the end of their life. Follow them. And I just have uh, one more question, and then we'll open it up for your questions. What is the issue of uniformity all about? 
Well, let me simply, and it's very short, very simple. Either we strive for uniformity in truth or we tolerate error and heresy. That's called pluralism. The toleration of all religion is the ruin of true religion. The toleration of all religion is the undermining of the faith. And because God is not double-minded when it comes to the truth, He knows the difference between right and wrong. He is the God of truth. When He gives to us His Word, we are obligated to promote and defend the truth in whatever station of life God has placed us in. Whatever our vocation, we are obligated to promote and defend the truth, whether that be the civil magistrate or the minister the elders, or the father in his home. No toleration. And so uniformity says, therefore, it is God's will that we be one in faith. There is only one faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. The many admonitions to be of the same mind What does that flow from? Well, that's because there's only one truth. And so uniformity in doctrine, in government, in worship and in discipline is what we should strive for and which was what our covenanted forefathers strove for because they saw toleration as being uh, an evil, being wicked to tolerate that which is wrong. In fact, the Lord Jesus says in one of his letters to the churches in Revelation, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's Christ's view of toleration of evil. I hate it. And we must have the same attitude. Which means that if we don't have that attitude, we're going to want uniformity in truth. Now, that's the end of what I have to say. I figured it would probably take about an hour or so. Um, And I will give you an opportunity to ask questions and I'll invite uh, Greg and Lyndon to to, uh, uh, help in answering questions as well. And so uh, uh, if anyone uh, would like to uh, ask some questions concerning these matters, uh, try and keep your, your questions as much as possible to these particular issues that we've uh, tried to cover this evening. Mike? Um, with regard to interviews for communicant membership, there's probably a number of situations in the church where the men have a much deeper knowledge of these issues than the wives do. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if that's going to be taken into consideration like when in the interviews with the wives. Otherwise, we end up with the situation where all the men are members, you know, communicant members, and the wives might not be or something. Well, again, I... <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me. <coughs> Would you like to try and answer that one while I get a drink here? Sure. In each case, it's important that when we come to the communion table, we have a separation between the sacred and the profane. And so we're going to try to require 
a uniform minimum knowledge to come to the table. Everybody be community members. If somebody is not at the level um, at the first run, uh, we will instruct them uh, where they're taken and bring them up to a level over time. So that it may be the case that some may come before others. And of course, it's not desirable. What we would desire is that all already would have the knowledge and come with flying colors. That won't be the case likely. So uh, we will try to let people know that uh, we'll work as hard as we can to bring them up to that level as soon as possible. And I think that, you know, with the kinds of questions that you have uh, at least uh, have been given to you this evening, that you know, basically, uh, again, I've tried to make it clear, we're not looking for details in these documents. Though, again, I think the details do bind us if they are agreeable to the Word of God. But what we're trying to communicate are the basic principles that are found in these documents. And uh, we won't go through, for example, necessarily, we won't necessarily go through all of the questions that I asked. I just simply gave you a kind of sampling, you know, the, uh, the kinds of questions you may be asked. I would, I would say also in regard to that, you know, just my personal understanding of a lot of the men and the women having known them for a long time, I would say that though what you said is true, uh, the case would be more often that, they, uh, that there are a number of men and some women who uh, uh, far exceed the minimum standard. And just because one exceeds the other doesn't mean the other isn't past the minimum standard. And so I think that would be more, uh, more likely the case and uh, and we you know try to fill up a few little gaps that may be still wanting on some of the newer issues. Lyndon, did you have any uh, response or comments to Mike's? Uh, okay. Any other questions? Go ahead, Reg. Yeah, the six terms of communion are the basis of the communion membership. Those are, those would be the foundation of that. Now um, the. Uh, I mean, we, we will no doubt have our hands full with uh, just dealing with those. Did you have a... I, I don't know the nature of your question. In there, there's like the Act Declaration and Testimony of Arkansas Renovation. What if somebody hasn't read them at all? Well, if they have not read them at all, that will become very apparent, I think, when we, when we begin examination. The, you know, theoretically, let's say that uh, uh, we were in a covenanted nation that had these as uh, our terms of communion, these six terms of communion, and, and included the Arkansas renovation and the Act Declaration and Testimony. And then there was another covenanted nation um, um, uh, somewhere else on the other side of the world, as similar to what was occurring, beginning to occur, you know, at the time of the Second Reformation. Now... <clears throat> Because they had not, at that particular point, attained to um, our, uh, you know, say, these particular standards, um, a member from that church in that particular covenanted nation may come to our church, and if we did a thorough interview, and we found that even though he had not read the Act Declaration and Testimony. It had not read the Arkansas Renovation, but he understood the concepts and the truths. We would not keep him from coming to the Lord's table. 
we wouldn't consider that to be a basis for, for keeping him because he affirms the truth of those documents. So theoretically, that could happen if someone, again, uh, understood all of these truths. I, I would also add to that that there may be some in reading these documents find the language cumbersome or too cumbersome and, and uh, not necessarily uh, you know, only wives to husbands, perhaps husbands to wives. Our goal is to have people working together to understand these documents. Now, it is, it is possible, but not likely, that they would understand all the concepts without reading them. Let's say one member of the family has read the documents very thoroughly and really understands it to a very high degree. They could sit there on a blackboard and explain to their spouse and their children all the concepts of these documents so that they're all very familiar with them without ever having read those books. That's acceptable. Not preferable, but that is acceptable. And again, we would hope that even if one at the point of becoming a member of the church hasn't read them all, that that would still be a desire in, uh, on that member's part to read them because these are, uh, these are uh, um, uh, documents we believe uh, every member should read. Uh, they should be very, at the right at the top of the list of things to read. Do you have another question, uh, Reg? Uh, I don't see anybody else uh, raising their, their hand, so we'll go ahead. Uh. Well, I was, I was just thinking while you were speaking about the uh, Cato Communion and the whole controversy, it kind of ties in with this in a sense. Mm-hmm. Do you have any comments on that? Pato Communion? Yeah. There's a lot of the Reformed churches being eaten up with that particular heresy at this point. Well, I mean, there's probably a lot of things I could say about it, but I'm, I, I think that it's contrary to the Word of God, uh, and um, uh, one who believed that would uh, uh, and maintained that particular view would not be able to come uh, uh, become a member of our congregation. Uh, they would have to maintain that that communicant membership is not for uh, for in, for infants and for uh, small children. Um, Other questions? It's, uh, it's not really a, a radical thought. Uh, we, when we questioned people for membership previously, we didn't ask if they'd read everything in the, in the confession, but we questioned them on the, the, the doctrines over there. That's, that's very true. Um, though the confession of faith was very clearly stated as one of our terms of communion, uh, we did, uh, we did uh, uh, ask them many, uh, many questions that pertain to the confession of faith to see that they had an orthodox understanding of the confession of faith before coming to the Lord's Supper. But, um, uh, but we did not require that they have uh, read it from beginning to end. I think it's very desirable, I think it's commendable, and I think that everybody should. But, but again, if, if someone has a different confession of faith, if that, were only, if that were the only term of communion was that we had, uh, besides the Word of God, was the um, confession of faith, just hypothetically, 
And yet again, in another um, nation, uh, their confession of faith embodied the same truths, but it wasn't the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we examined them. They understood the Reformed faith. That wouldn't prevent them from coming to the Lord's table because they had not read uh, the Confession of Faith. Um, I know that you've touched on this, but the, uh, the, the topic sometimes is brought up that uh, when the church was forming, that uh, there were, where do we see such rigid requirements for communion? But also they didn't have the whole Bible written at that time. And would we say now that uh, it's not required of a Christian to read this, read this whole Bible? Uh, no, we wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So would you uh, conclude from that that there's a, a greater obligation on Christians as history goes on? Yeah. Could I uh, read you a quote? <laughs> I was going to include this in my study, but you, uh, you, since you've raised it, Lyndon, I'll, uh, I'll just take the opportunity because this is one of those quotes you don't... Uh, I uh, like to bypass. This is from uh, uh, an apologetical relation uh, by uh, John Brown of Wamfrey. And he's talking about this issue of uh, our duty and responsibility to, to uh, attainments of Reformation. Um, and he says, There is a vast difference to be put betwixt a time wherein the church is advancing in a course of reformation and a time wherein she is declining and sliding back from that degree of reformation unto which she had already attained. In a time wherein the church is but coming out of darkness and the day is but beginning to break up, many things may then be comported with and tolerated which may not be submitted unto after the church hath got all these abuses reformed. Every believer in every church is bound to stand fast in that which they have attained unto and not to seed in a hoof, so that Christians living in a time wherein the church is but beginning to wrestle up from under the heap of error and corruption may be allowed to do many things which must not be done when the noontide of the day has come. In the time of the Reformation begun by Luther and others, many things might have been comported within the church. Uh, Reformation being a gradual motion that hath but small beginnings and risings, which now, since the Reformation hath been carried on through the blessing of God, to that degree it was advanced to, cannot be allowed. When God hath wonderfully, by his mighty power and outstretched arm, brought a church to a great length in Reformation, it will be the duty of that church and of the members thereof to adhere to that degree unto which they have attained with all perseverance. It will be lawful for the church which is but coming up the hill to stand at such a step until they gain another, when yet it will not be lawful for the same church to go backward after they have advanced. The truth once bought should never be sold. So the consequence is null. Their forefathers stumbled not, nor did scruple at the doing of such or such things. Therefore, those in this generation who have advanced through the blessing of God unto a farther degree of reformation should not scruple either. Just a little bit more. It is a poor consequence to say the the posterity may return backward because their forefathers could not advance farther. Much more may be seen when the sun is up than in the twilight. 
Therefore, the scrupling of honest people now doth no way condemn their forefathers. But on the contrary, the steadfastness of their forefathers in standing to the degree to which they had reached and their endeavoring to advance will condemn this generation for backsliding. Yeah, very definitely. Most yeah. commonly, we thought, think of it as individual backsliding. But. Yeah, I think probably uh, uh, in the Old Testament, the most common use is, with re- is corporate use with regard to Israel, backsliding. Bridge? This could be addressed to any of the others again. Is which uh, books have been most helpful or would be most helpful to study the idea of uh, the Lord's Supper specifically or look at the points possibly that might be more important than others? Okay. Which, which books Which books might be most helpful in, uh, in uh, if people wanted to study some of the matters we discussed this evening? Uh, which books have you found most helpful? Go ahead, Greg. For those, uh, for those who can read through them, uh, the works by Samuel Rutherford are, are among the best in terms of accuracy of information, but also among the most difficult to understand in terms of trying to get the information out of them. Um, he, will, he will teach you the most if you understand what he's saying. John Brown of Longfrey is also excellent, and anything by George Gillespie will put forth these positions with uh, great clarity. So those are the three authors that I would uh, recommend most highly. Hugh um, Binning as well, works with Hugh Binning, will teach you very well. Lennon, anything that you'd like to add to that? I think uh, if a person was going to try and, and get by without reading everything, uh, which we're not recommending, but if they were going to try that, that they would be best equipped by reading the Reformed Presbyterian Catechism. I think it hits all of those issues in a very short and succinct manner. Is that by Scott? Uh, no. Um, is that by? Williams, is it? Roberts. Roberts. Okay. Reformed Catechism by Roberts. And on the on the subject of uh, uh, close communion, um, uh, works by uh, McKnight, uh, James Christie, and uh, I don't know his first name. George is the last name. Um, and uh, those works on close communion, I think, are uh, mo- I found to be most helpful. But I would agree with with. Uh, um, what has been said. I would just add one other work, uh, Hind Let Loose by Al- Alexander Shields, I think uh, has uh, a lot of good information on uh, uh, these issues of the church uh, as well. He gets into uh, civil issues uh, but uh, as well, but uh, uh, he's, I think, very clear in his thinking and he does a lot of quoting of, of the, uh, of the uh, men from the uh, Second Reformation. Reg? Uh, if somebody from a, a nation that didn't come from British posterity under the Sovereign Covenant, etc., mm-hmm. um, came and wanted to take the Lord's Supper with us, mm-hmm. uh, they, their nation wouldn't be bound by that particular descending obligation. 
So what would you look for that they would uh, understand the principle of it being bound? Or? Yeah, that they understand. I think that would be the, <clears throat> the key question, again, is that they understand the truths in those documents to be uh, agreeable to the Word of God. So if, for instance, somebody, in one case, somebody could come from the United States to visit our church, and if they didn't agree uh, that the Psalm-Lincoln Covenant particularly bound them, mm-hmm. they would be refused to the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. whereas if somebody came from Holland or someplace, they wouldn't be refused. Yeah, as long as they believe that the the truths taught in the covenants are agreeable to the Word of God and that the, that the moral equity of those truths binds them. That they're bound and obliged to the moral equity that comes from those truths. Right. Yes, Lyndon? Uh, how soon would the communion be implemented in the church uh, after we start receiving members? I don't think that the session is a good question, but we haven't really talked about that. So I think that uh, it would be best, uh, uh, I, would, I would hope that after we have had a chance to grow, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do so, I don't think, halfway through you know, interviews, you know, that we're all of a sudden going to have the Lord's Supper and we haven't interviewed all the people who want to be interviewed. So I would say after we go through the process of interviewing those who want to be interviewed, um, and uh, have if there are still some, um, I would think if there are still some um, uh, uh, loops that need to be tied together, uh, and and they're very close, we'd want to f- I think finish all of that, and then we have the church in Prince George as well, and so probably after that, right after that, I would think we could do so, and and uh, so. I think we're, we're still going to need some time unless we're going to run ourselves ragged here you know, uh, in, in uh, the next uh, two or three weeks. We're still going to need uh, some time to accomplish the interviewing of, uh, of members. But we would, we would now, after this, uh, this uh, lesson, invite families to uh, request visits from the elders to, uh, for the purpose of uh, interviews. So that certainly uh, uh, now is available to the families in the congregation. So as uh, soon as uh, we're ended this evening, uh, you can put your, your name on the list and uh, uh, if there is, uh, we'll, we'll talk about a time and that type of thing and then we'll, uh, and then we'll uh, begin. Okay, any other questions this evening? All right. Thank you very much for your attention and your questions. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.